This morning's reading is from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, each according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You know, some people see the Bible as a series of disconnected stories that were meant to teach us moral principles and the right way to live. And that is one way to read the Bible. But when you go way up high and you get the the full panorama of Scripture, what you discover from that vantage point is that the Bible actually tells one story. There's a single overarching storyline woven all throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's not so much about what you should do, but about what God has done and what he has promised yet to do. And really, it's not mainly about us. It's primarily about him. I've taken to calling it the grand story of God. And what we see right here at the outset of the story is just that. What is at the center of reality is not humanity, it's not nature, it's not the cosmos, but God who made everything else. In the beginning, God. One man said, if you can believe the first four words of the Bible, then you shouldn't have much of a problem believing everything else that follows. In the beginning, God. Well, we're beginning a short three-week series today, and we're teaching it at all three of our campuses. And by the way, it's now official. New Life is now one church meeting in three locations beginning today, right now. We're teaching this at all of our campuses, and our aim is to go back to the beginning, the beginning of the the Bible's grand story, and and we're going to try and identify the foundations of the Christian worldview. And I hope that as a believer, you want to cultivate and and have a Christian worldview. And if you don't know what a worldview is, it's basically the lenses through which you see life and through which you see the world. What I've been reminded of as I've studied for this series is is that the ideas we find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are not only foundational for our lives as individuals, but also for human society in general, for culture at large. What we're going to find here are some 
huge, monumental themes found here in the opening chapters of the Bible, truths that are not only serving as anchors for an individual life, but also as cornerstones for a culture that endures. When an individual person or when a society disconnects from these themes, the inevitable result is going to be darkness and chaos. And we're seeing some of that in our culture. Now, I mentioned the grand story, and Bible scholars tell us that it's really a drama that unfolds in four acts. And if I haven't asked you yet to take out your study guide from your worship folder, you'll want to do that so you can follow along with me. The storyline of the Bible is a drama that unfolds in four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So if anybody ever asks you, hey, the Bible's a big book, what's it all about? You can say this, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's the storyline. Creation, the world came into being through a causal agent, and that agent was God. Fall. The crowning achievement of God's creation, human beings sadly chose to rebel against their creator by seeking to be their own Lord, their own master, their own savior, and the consequences of that high treason against God are massive. They are incalculable. Creation fall, act three is redemption. That in his great love, that in his great mercy, the creator of all things promised good news fallen humanity, amen? amen? The gospel. Namely, that he would work in human history to redeem a people for himself, a forever family of forgiven saints, and he carried that plan out. He executed it with great pre precision and perfection, his great rescue plan through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And then act four is consummation, that the creator has decreed that all of creation will one day be restored to its original design. And as the sovereign living Lord of all things, even now, he is guiding human history towards that end. And what's so interesting to me is that we find the seeds of each of these great themes right here in the first three chapters of the Bible. And of course, Genesis 1 and 2 presents Act 1, creation. In the beginning, God created. Next week... We'll talk more about the cultural cornerstones that we discover in these chapters, things like the sanctity of human life, things like binary gender identity, maleness and femaleness, heterosexual monogamous marriage, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and bring children into the world, all of which have become flashpoints in our culture today. I'm thinking you're not going to want to miss next week. So if you had plans to be gone, cancel them so you can be here, okay? But today, from Genesis 1, I want us to first see some, some massive truths about creation that are essential to embrace if you want to cultivate a truly Christian worldview. And then we'll look at some of the implications of those truths for your life and for mine as followers of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, what you hear today will hopefully help you better understand why your Christian friends are so weird and where their beliefs came from. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. Here are five monumental, foundational truths from the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And here they are. Before there was anything, there was God. The entire world was made by God. God created the world through his word. 
And originally creation was good, even very good. And the universe has a designated purpose. So let's walk through these carefully one at a time. Number one, before there was anything, there was God. When you look at the creation story here in Genesis, it becomes clear that the main character in the story is God. When we read, in the beginning, God, it implies that wherever in time you want to mark the beginning, 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, a million years, whatever, wherever you want to mark the beginning, God was already there. He already existed. The main character was on the scene first, before anyone or anything else. And so for people who believe the Bible, the ultimate reality then is not nature, it's not the cosmos, it is God the creator. He is the first cause of everything else that exists. He is the uncaused cause of the entire universe. And we learn a lot about this creator from Genesis chapter 1. Let me point out several things. We learn that, that he is unique. That this one is the only God. You know, you read Genesis 1.1, it doesn't say, in the beginning, several gods were at war with each other and the victorious God created the world from the carcasses of the other gods that he defeated. It does not say that. A lot of ancient mythologies did, but the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say, in the beginning, everything came from nothing. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, in the beginning, creator and creation were one as they had been throughout all eternity. No, it doesn't say that either. It tells us that there is only one deity who has always existed, who made everything else, including humanity. Like it says in Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. As we like to sing in one of our favorite worship songs around here, you have no rival, you have no equal. The creator is the only God. Second, we learn from Genesis 1 that God is personal. He's personal. He's not just a force, although he exerts incredible force. The pronouns here are personal. He. He's a person who speaks and acts and creates. He's He's a person who relates and evaluates and, and even enjoys things. He steps back from his creation and says, it's good. Forces don't say that. Personhood. God is a person. Third, we learn from Genesis 1 that God is plural. Even the name ascribed to him in Genesis 1.1 tells us this. It's, it's the word Elohim. Elohim and in the Hebrew language, that suffix I am is a plural suffix. It's like our S. God is one, we learn, but he's more than one. Verse 2 introduces us to the Spirit of God. Verse 3, we're told about the spoken word of God, which later on we discover is also a person, the word. And then in, in verse 26, God speaks and he says something very interesting. He says, let us create man in our image. People ask, who's us? Some say it's the angels. Let us. But mankind was not created in the image of the angels. You see, the stunning doctrine of the Holy Trinity is found right here in the very first words of the Bible. God is one, and yet God is three persons. 
And so interestingly, you think about that, in that sense, God is a community. And what that means is that before the world ever existed, you know what? There was love. Before the world existed, before the universe existed, there was love. Father, Son, and Spirit were together in community, serving each other, honoring each other, glorifying each other, working with each other for eons before there ever was a world or people. And in their collaborative work of creating, they simply decided to expand the circle of love so that more beings could get in on agape. Isn't that great? Amen. I sense the Spirit of God in our room today. God is plural. Fourth truth we learn in Genesis 1 is that God is powerful. The Hebrew word translated created in verse 1 is the Hebrew word bara. Bara. That word's only used of God. And it means to create something out of nothing. In the beginning, God barad. He created something with no raw materials. There was nothing there to create from. There's another word translated create in the Old Testament. It's the word asa. And asa is used in other places where it talks about taking something that exists, taking existing matter and forming it and shaping it into something else into something that's useful or something that's beautiful. We do a lot of Asa work. I, uh, I received a great gift this week, a carved, framed, wooden image of the face of one of my heroes, Billy Graham. My friend Dan made it for me. Thank you, Dan. It's beautiful. He, he said, I, I heard you say in a sermon once that you highly regard Billy Graham, that he's one of your heroes, and so I decided to make this for you. He made it using his woodworking skills and his woodworking tools. You could say that Dan created this, but he did have some raw materials to work from. So technically, he didn't bara this beautiful gift, he assad it. <laughs> he took raw materials and, and made something beautiful, a piece of framed art for me, and I, I am so grateful. Thank you, Dan. But only God can bara. Only God can create out of nothing. God is powerful. He's also living. The account here reveals not an inanimate object, but a living being who not only possesses life in himself, but infuses his life into the things that he created. And then we learn also that God is transcendent. God is transcendent, and that's a term that Bible scholars use. It means that he's distinct from his creation. You see, many people, in fact, many of your friends hold a worldview that states that nature and God and us are all one, and that we just kind of need to get in tune with the godness that is in everything and is in trees and rocks and mountains and God and us. That's called pantheism or panentheism or the new age spirituality, but look, Genesis 1-1 does not allow for that. It states that, that there is God and there is creation and they are distinct and one came from the other. They're not the same. And of course that makes sense because there's a lot of evil and rottenness in creation that we wouldn't want to say is part of God. God is transcendent. He's distinct from his creation. He is also uncaused and independent. The rest of creation is dependent upon God, right? And I get up in the mornings and I say, thank you, Lord, that my heart is beating today. I attribute that to you. Thank you that my brain is functioning today, at least after I get my cup of coffee. 
And I attribute that to him. We are dependent upon our creator, but our creator is not dependent upon anything. He doesn't need the universe. He got along just fine before anything was created. Listen to how Paul put it when he was speaking to the people in Athens. He said this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The only truly self-sufficient independent being in the universe is God. He doesn't need anything. He wants some things. He desires many things, but he doesn't need anything for his existence. Then we also learn that God is imminent. So this is kind of the, the other side of the coin from transcendent. God is also imminent. And that means that God is involved with his creation. Deists believe that there, there is a God and he kind of got everything rolling way back when, but then he backed away from his creation and he just kind of lets it run. He wound up the clock, they would say, and, and then just lets it go with no activity or intervention on his part. But the God we see in Genesis 1 through 3 is involved. He's actively working. He's sustaining his creation, ruling over it. He walks with mankind in the garden. He speaks, he relates, he intervenes in certain situations. He is imminent. He's also creative, beautiful, holy, sovereign, and much, much, much more, we learn in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 teaches us that before anything else, there was God, this God, Elohim. He's the only truly eternal being. He always was, he is, he always will be. It just makes sense that people who are wise... I didn't say smart or clever. I said people who are wise will seek to find out more about this amazing creator. There's a second monumental truth revealed in Genesis 1.1, and that is that the entire world was made by God. The entire universe was made by God, and for millennia, mankind has been intrigued by huge existential questions about our origins. We've ask questions like, how did the world come to be? How did we all get here? How old is the earth? When did humans come on the scene? And how? And where did animals and trees and plants all come from? And many hypotheses have been put forward. Many theories have been offered. Naturalistic theories offer explanations for our origins, apart from any divine creator. They would contend that God is not necessary. More recent theories admit the need for some kind of intelligent agency of some sort, but again, most leave out a creative God, a creative deity. And none of these really get to the ground floor and offer a reasonable explanation for the very first cause that produced all of that primordial ooze or all those elements that came together and exploded in the Big Bang or whatever. Where do those things come from? Genesis just simply states that the God who already existed made it all. He spoke, he spoke, and things came into being. Light, sky and land, oceans and rain, fish and birds, animals, plants, humans. Genesis affirms what every human being knows instinctively down deep in their soul. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. There had to have been a first cause, excuse me, of everything that we see. 
Now, we need to understand there's some disagreement about things. There's kind of an intramural debate within evangelical Christianity even about exactly how creation came about and about how long it took. Your questions like, are you a young earth proponent or an old earth advocate? Was it six literal 24-hour days or is the day-age interpretation more likely? Was there a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 allowing for millions of years to pass or, or not? Could God have created the world in primitive form and then allowed the forces of natural evolution to just kind of complete his work? Can science and creation be reconciled? These are debated even among good and godly Christians. You need to understand that. People that I look up to and respect as mentors, some of them don't agree on these things. When I researched it, I came to found there's, find there's at least six different positions taken by Bible-believing Christians on these questions. And you're going to need to study this for yourself and form your own convictions for me, say, where do you stand? For me, I'm a young earth, six literal, 24-hour day creationist, and I think I'm right, but I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I would grant that Genesis 1-1 might allow for an older earth. It could be saying in verse 1 that God initially created the whole universe which then existed for an undefined period of time until that moment that he began his work, his literal 24-hour day work of preparing that without form and void land to be inhabited by humans. But I just can't buy naturalistic macroevolution in any form, not even theistic macroevolution. Genesis just doesn't allow for it. Plus, in my way of thinking, as I said, I believe that nothing ever comes from nothing. Chaos cannot produce order. Personality cannot arise from impersonal matter. Moral consciousness can't just be the result of chemicals. And design always, always points to a designer. Amen. You look at the phone in your pocket, you look at that, you look at its functionality, and you say, somebody built this. <laughs> this was not just the product of time and chance. I could talk about irreducible complexity. Have you ever heard of that? There are many organic systems that evolution just can't account for. The bacterial flagellar motor, the bombardier beetle. Amen. Google it. Check it out. There's these little organic machines with lots of parts that all fit together just so with preciseness that... that have to all be together and functioning in place at the same time for the thing to even work. Even atheistic, secular scientists have had to admit this. Some have even admitted something else. Some have admitted that the cosmos seems to be fine-tuned with precision in such a way as to support human existence on this planet. For example, they point to 15 different constants in our universe. Everything from the gravitational force constant to the Earth's distance from the sun to the angle of the Earth's axis to the Earth's rotation period to our own carbon dioxide levels that we emit. If any one of those 15 constants was off just ever so slightly, we wouldn't be here. It, 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 the environment would not support human life. 
One scientist even said this, and this guy's no friend of Christianity. He wrote this, when you look at the universe from the perspective of a scientist, it sure looks as if it knew we were coming. (laughs) I believe that true unbiased science, that's an important word, unbiased science, is not at odds with the biblical account of creation. There's a growing list of scientists who agree In the past, science has been known to eventually come around with new discoveries, to come around to support the biblical account. And I agree with Francis Schaeffer and others who contend that in the end, there will be no final conflict between science and scripture. In fact, he wrote a book by that title, No Final Conflict. So that's where I'm at personally. Everybody has to do their own due diligence on this and form your own convictions, but now you know where I stand. The reality is that Genesis 1 just doesn't supply specific answers to all of our questions. We're all concerned about how, 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 and what Genesis talks about really is why. It it focuses on the purpose question. But the bedrock truth that all true Christians believe remains, the world was made by God. Like it says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, whether they be In heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Psalm 90 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God made the world. Third monumental truth, aspect of a Christian worldview is this, God created the world through his word through his word. Did you see the pattern when Catherine was reading it? And God said, let there be, dot, 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 and there was, dot, dot, dot. Again and again and again, let there be light, and there was light. Who else can do that? Who else can bara? (laughs) Only God. He spoke and material things appeared, came into existence. By the word of the Lord, Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood forth. Hebrews 11:3. by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There it is. Bara, the ex nihilo creation of God. No raw materials. God created the world through his word. Fourth, creation was originally good, very good. And the picture we get of God in Genesis 1 really is of a, a master craftsman or a, a master artisan at work creating something stunningly beautiful designed to be enjoyed. During each day of creation, when his work was done, it tells us that God stepped back and said what? It is good. Do you, do you think when it says that, that it, that it, that it means that, that creation on that day just passed inspection? Like, uh, inspected by number 24, it's good to go. Do you think that's what it means? Bible scholars see in this a lot more than that. They see satisfaction. They see enjoyment. 
They see that sense of completeness and fulfillment that's experienced by the craftsman or the painter or the sculptor or the songwriter who, after putting the finishing touches on their work, steps back and looks at it with proper pride and says, that's good. (laughs) People are going to love this. People are going to enjoy this. It's going to bring great enjoyment to them like it's bringing to me right now. God is like that. A few weeks ago, a group of us were having a picnic out in our picnic shelter back here. And it was right at sundown, right as the sun was going down. For a few moments, as the sun sank below the horizon, the sky was just a kaleidoscope of color. Breathtakingly beautiful. Oranges, pinks, yellows, purple hues in layers filling the evening sky. And we were all eating there and talking and we just paused for a moment and just took it all in. One of my friends, Rick, snapped some pictures of it and handed it to me the next week and said, wasn't that awesome? And I, I, I said, yeah. And I remember thinking, that's my God doing that. That's the, that's the master artisan at work once again creating beauty like nobody else can. He's good at it. And he does it for his own enjoyment. It is good and for ours. I guess God could have left it a drab, bland, colorless, musicless world. Verse 2 seems to indicate it was like that for a season without form and void. It pictures kind of a wasteland. But what he did in six days was create a lush, tropical garden paradise for human beings and for animals to live in. And that tells us something about God, doesn't it? tells us that he created for joy, his joy and our joy. You see, massive truth number five, the universe has a designated purpose. It was meant for something. What the Bible tells us is that all of creation is, in essence, singing a song, pointing us to the creator prompting us to enjoy praising God for his awesomeness. Isn't that what Psalm 19 means when it says the heavens declare the glory of God? The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Everybody is blessed and privileged to see the handiwork of God every day. I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says, nature sings a song of praise because it is under the benediction of God. The word benediction just means to speak good, to speak well of, to speak good. He says, nature is singing, our maker enjoys us. Our maker delights in us. Our maker says, we are good. So beautiful. But there's a sad truth, isn't there? We humans, in our natural, unredeemed state, you know what? We can't join nature's song, can we? You see, we too were created to live under the benediction of God, to hear from him that he delights in us. He looks at us with favor, that he says we, were, we are good. But we don't have that assurance in our unredeemed state because we know down deep that we're not right with God, that we've 
rebelled against our maker. Every human being has made the choice to be their own Lord, to be their own master, taking after our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We don't want to go in under the king. And when we hear nature calling out to us to praise our maker, the truth is we have a little bit of trouble with it. The wind whistles, the birds chirp happily, the thunder roars, but we cannot join nature's song. I was intrigued by something that the evangelist, the great British evangelist George Whitfield said once about this. He asked, why is it that when we humans go near the animals, they growl at us? Why is it that when we draw near, they bark at us? Why is it that when we approach a flock of birds, what do they do? They fly away from us. It's as if they know, he said, it's as if they know that we humans have a quarrel with their maker. How can humanity rectify this? What can we do to come into alignment with the design of the rest of the universe? How can we come under the benediction of God and hear him say to us, you are good and I delight in you? How can we join nature's choir? Many of you know there's another place in Scripture that sounds strikingly similar to Genesis 1.1. It also starts in the beginning. You know it? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and this life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This tells us that the word of God became flesh, became human. That the word that made matter became matter. This one came to us as one of us. And we know the story tells us that he went to a cross. Think about that. When you think about what happened there on Calvary's mountain that day, wasn't it a reversal of what happened in creation? Wasn't it the exact opposite of what happened in Genesis 1-1? You see, the Spirit of God was not hovering over him that day. He went out into the void where there was chaos and disorder. He entered not a lush garden of beauty, but a garden of agony and betrayal, didn't he? He spoke, he spoke as the living word. But this time there was no response, there was no light, there was no answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Instead of light dispelling the darkness, while he hung on the cross for three hours, thick, Darkness enveloped the earth. He was separated from the light of the Father's presence. That life that was the light of men was snuffed out and he died desolate, buried in the earth. And when that happened, nature ceased its song and seemed to convulse underneath the weight of the cross. What was happening? I believe that Jesus, the creating word of God, was being decreated. 
deconstructed. Why? Because our maker had to become unmade so that we could be made new in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He was decreated so we could be recreated. And somebody might ask, well, how, how can that come about for me? The Bible tells us that Jesus, the living word of God, came. He came to us. He lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. He took our place. He was our substitute tells us then that he was raised to life again and exalted to the right hand of God, seated there as a ruling king, reigning over his creation. You see, John chapter 1 tells us that he came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if we will hear this good news, if we will believe it at the core of our being, then God can look at us in Christ and say, you are good. You are righteous. You have my favor. I delight in you. And we can live our lives under the sweet benediction of God. And we can sing back to him in response, our maker loves us. My maker loves me. He delights in me. He sings over me. And he says, I am good. In Christ. How glorious is that? The universe is singing to us every day, pointing us to the goodness and glory of our Maker. And when we see the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and when we savor it, when we embrace it, we too can join nature's song of joyous worship. Well, there's a lot more we could say about all this. I think I'll finish by briefly offering you some very important implications of this, implications of the doctrine of creation for your life and for mine. First, just the reminder that at the center of reality is not you. Sorry to break it to you. It's not me. It's not nature. It's not the cosmos. It's God. But far from being disappointing or Depressing to us to learn that we're not at the center of the universe, this truth brings great hope of both present fulfillment and future joy because of the promises of God. I would say this as well, to put something other than God at the center of our lives will inevitably lead to chaos and darkness and disorder. But to give God his rightful place in our hearts will bring clarity and order and light. Third, enjoying God's creation. By the way, how many of you are mountain people? Like, just let me head to the mountains. I feel connected with God when I'm in the mountains. How many of you are ocean and waves people? Yeah, how many of you are wilderness people? Like, just give me a backpack and a tent and a gun or two, and I mean, I feel so close to God. We all, isn't it, it's in us, isn't it? We, we, we get out in creation, and there's something that, there's a connection we feel with the one who made it all. But that finds its fullest expression and its climax, not just in appreciating God's gift, 
but in running up the rails to the one who made the gift, the one who gave the gift of honoring and worshiping the giver who made it for his pleasure and ours. Then lastly, since we were created to enjoy praising God, you've heard me say this before, and I've borrowed it. I know it's a little bit mystifying, but it's true. Since we were created to enjoy praising God, that means his desire to be glorified and our desire to be happy are not at odds. These desires that seemingly are in conflict are not in conflict. They are one in the same pursuit. God says, worship me, glorify me, magnify me. And we say, I just want to be happy. And those two are one. Pray for the revelation of the Holy Spirit that you would understand that. John Piper in his famous statement says it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we are enjoying him immensely. I close with this. The cry of the ages, the cry of all who are in heaven. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. Amen. Next week, we'll talk about personal anchors for your soul and cultural cornerstones for a healthy society. You won't want to miss it. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, thank you for this time. Oh, how good it is to be reminded that we're not at the center of the universe, that there is one greater, so much greater than us. And Lord, you've created us in such a way that that when we when we praise you, when we worship you from deep in our being, we we know this is why we were created. And it brings us great joy. Lord, give us that revelation that we need to understand where true happiness lies. Lord, I pray for all of my friends who sit in front of me today. May you help us to align with the purpose of the universe. May you enable us to join nature's song May we hear your voice. May we be assured in our hearts, you are good, you are beautiful. I love you, I delight in you. Oh, how we long and ache to hear that from you, Lord. Thank you that in Christ, our hearts can be assured of that very thing. Receive our praise again, I I ask in Jesus' name, amen.